ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our ongoing recurring series that we've been doing in the lead up to our big event, December 17th at the Pickwick Theater, where out front we'll be doing a live event and, uh, you know, giving them a costume contest, trivia contest, we'll be doing a raffle, and uh, generally just having a good time making the most out of the biggest movie release of the year. I am Nick Sarandos, editor-in-chief and host of the Chicago Podcast Network, joined over the interwebs by my good buddy, uh, AJ, who is talking to us today through the Skype app. AJ, how you doing, man? Say hi to the people. Hey, people. I'm fine. That's good. He's fine. We're all good. And we're finally, ladies and gentlemen, free and clear of Hayden Christensen and George Lucas in the 90s. We are back to George Lucas in the 70s when he was, I guess you would call him an auteur, AJ, when he was one of the select group of people that came out of uh, USC's film school, UCLA film school, and went into L.A. and uh, launched their own little dynasties there. Do you know about that, by the way, the whole like cross-pollination of that time period? A little bit. I mean, I've always been curious of where various directors, actors, and writers go to school at and everything and get to know how they all have done things while they're in school or um, how they were influenced by their um, fellow classmates and everything. So it's always interesting to know, like, you know, Lucas being at USC film school, um, what they some people have done in, like, in the new school um, film program out there and everything. So, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of an open eye. Like entirely, like a lot of people do. Well, there's a there's an interesting story because this is kind of where I want to get started with because this is part of a time period uh, with a lot of originality in Hollywood. Uh, in in this time period, coming out of the same schools and all eventually kind of working. Uh, people don't really know this, but uh, a lot of these guys got started with Roger Corman, uh, Francis mm-hmm. Ford Coppola. Made, made films with Roger Corman. George Lucas worked on a couple. Uh, Spielberg, Scor- Scorsese did as well. And these guys all came out at the same time and kind of knew each other from college and would help each other out. And a lot of uh, materials or props or things that could help guys come in under budget would be used back and forth. This is 1977. This is the same time period as The Godfather is being made by Francis Ford Coppola. Taxi Driver is being made by Scorsese. You've got Spielberg, who I think at this point is still in school, but I believe production is beginning on Jaws. And in the midst of all of this, you have the very gritty 70s cinema thing going in with... A lot of sex, a lot of violence, a lot of drug use. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with Gene Hackman or Robert Redford's work in this time period, you know, there's a lot of, I guess you would call it, you know, the Dirty Harry effect. Gritty, real kind of storytelling. And in the midst of all of this, you know, we get the release of Star Wars Episode Four: uh, A New Hope, which wasn't called Episode Four then, it was just Star Wars A New Hope. And it, and it played. And after suffering through the prequels as we've done it was just really nice to get to one that i remember loving and i'll tell you this aj this is of the original three the one i tend to watch the least believe it or not what about you i would say the same thing um i'm not the biggest fan of new hope not because it's not a good film i think it is um because uh, again how we were introduced, this was like the first film in the series of the other two that we're going to be talking about in the days to come. So, for me, this was more of an introduction to Star Wars and what the story is going to be talking about. And so I find myself more liking Return of the Jedi, more so New Hope. The... Uh the thing with me is that I've always found myself, the way I described it to my friend last night who came over to watch the movie with me, is I tend to, if I'm like, I want to watch Star Wars today, what I tend to end up watching is Empire. And if you watch Empire, you have to watch Jedi. So I tend to watch those two predominantly more than this one. And I haven't like sat and watched 
the original Star Wars straight through without like a distraction nearby in a long time. And it was nice to watch this and remember why I love this movie so much. And a big part of it is Harrison Ford's performance as Han Solo. He makes this movie. Uh, Mark Hamill at this point, I would say, is he's not nearly as bad as Hayden Christensen was early on, but he's still a very young actor. There are scenes where Carrie Fisher is one of the best actresses you've ever seen, and then there are other lines that she delivers that are very much a younger actress. But the thing that this movie has that the uh, three prequels lacked is chemistry between the stars. Like, you can tell instantly that these are three people who, they may not be the best of friends, but they can at least get along well enough to create something special. Well, I think you can say that with a lot of those actors of that time period because there were some that were looking to branch out into other films. You had some up-and-coming actors, and you had some who just wanted to do a film because they wanted to. Um, so I think that um, I think it was Star Wars was not, especially New Hope, was not necessarily the case because I think that was the case for a lot of people in this new era of Hollywood, you know, um, because with Star Wars, you know, Roger Ebert said, you know, like Birth of a Nation, um, Star Wars was this technical watershed for a lot of films. And if you look at some of the films that came after um, Star Wars, because they were so influenced by this, um, Blade Runner, um, I'm also thinking of um, Aliens, Terminator, Lord of the Rings. You know, they kind of use Star Wars from a technical sense on how to make big budget blockbusters. This is, uh, you mentioned some of the actors who are in it. You know, the, the movie is interesting because you have a lot of unknown actors. You know, you Harrison Ford at this point has basically only been an American graffiti. Mark, Mark Hamill's an unknown actor fresh out of school. Uh, Carrie Fisher, uh, actress fresh out of school. But then, but then on the outsides, you've got Alec Guinness, Sir Alec Guinness, one of the most respected actors in English history, and also Peter Cushing, another well-known actor who had played Sherlock Holmes and Dracula and and Van Helsing, actually one of the few characters actors to portray both characters, and you you have this really interesting combination of talent and idealism in the middle of a time period that, let's face it, neither of us were alive during it, but everything you read says that it's a, a big part of it is, you know, you're coming off of Nixon, you're coming off of Watergate, you're coming off of Vietnam, and here's this movie that's about fantasy. In, in a time period of relatively depressing cinema, here's this just fun ride that takes you on an adventure and, you know, captured a lot of people's imaginations to the point that it's spawned a franchise that's coming up on its 50th anniversary and people, you know, went nuts for it. And there are so many reasons why, but I think that, you know, as we've been doing through this whole thing, might as well get started with this, even the, I, I said it, AJ, right when the movie started, when the crawl started, I was like, look at that, there's not a single thing that's mentioned in there about, like, politics, or, or taxation, or, you know, we're, we're having debates, or any of that, no, it's just a great up, straight up great crawl, here we go, it is a period of civil war, rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the Galactic Empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the De Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. Pursued by the Empire's sinister agents, Princess Leia races home aboard her starship, custodian of the stolen plans that can save her people and restore freedom to the galaxy. Instantly right there you're in. You, you know there are good guys, there are bad guys, and Princess Leia is a good person, and here's your story, go. Just the crawl itself, AJ, is an instant improvement over the last three movies. So, like I said in episode one review that we did, um, with the, the, the crawl that's happened, um, that kind of set of context was with this one, with New Hope, we have that context of what's going on. And you like already jumped right into you know the story without knowing you know any of the prequels and everything. And that first scene of the Empire ship and fighting the other ship and everything. And it's this long, somewhat drawn out moment right there 
that visual showing like how big the empire is and that the empire is like this big massive entity you don't need context for that that visually has shown that this is something that the rebels are up against and you don't need that kind of context like the first three kind of provided for us um this is right in the middle of the narrative of the story and having both that crawl and that first moments of the ships just kind of sets that tone right away and want us to know more who this Princess Leia is and where is this going to go from here. You know, you're, it's interesting you say that because I, towards the middle of the movie, I said to my friends that I really felt like this movie can answer a lot of questions about what went wrong with the, what went wrong with the prequels in that you get the scope of the universe from this movie in a way that isn't as forced in the prequels. At no point do you see a large galactic senate. At no point do you see crowds of hundreds of thousands of people doing anything. But you get the idea very early on that you are part of a much larger universe in this story, which is a testament to the the movie itself and to the storytelling aspect. And, let's face it, some of the writing problems are still here, but they're not as prevalent. And I don't know if that's due to George Lucas being more open to letting actors kind of improv. If it's what you were saying, where people in the prequels where, well, it's George Lucas. He must know what he's doing. But you get the idea that these are real people in a world that is, and that's the other thing. This movie is beat up. Like, and I don't mean it like, uh, in a bad way. I mean, the stormtroopers' uniforms are very dirty. The ships, the clothing, the weapons look beat up. There's an age to everything that is lacking in the prequels, which I think grounds this movie in reality. It's the ability to sit there and go, no, this is a real-world environment. We just happen to be catching it, like you're saying, in the middle of its civilization. Did you... No, I mean, did you notice that difference? That, that to me is one of the most striking differences watching this movie is how gritty and dirty everything looks. Well, well yeah, but that speaks more towards of the kind of films that the seventies provided for us. Um, when the, that film was done versus what the prequels provide for us, that was a night and day difference where technology came to play. Um, I, I remember hearing that George Lucas had a really tough time pitching Star Wars um, because uh, I guess studios in Hollywood didn't want that kind of film. You know, even though what Space Odyssey 2001 came out um, and some other films regarding sci-fi came out, it was just a really hard sell. So very famous, yes, very famously, what? he went to all of the major studios, uh, showed them the script, showed them some of the production designs, and every studio turned him down. And it was only when he went back to Fox a second time with that sweetheart deal for merchandising and part of the gross, but nothing up front, that they agreed to make the movie. Sorry, go ahead. Right, right, but I guess he, in, in order for him to do that, he actually bought the rights to. Flash Gordon, and he wanted to create a Flash Gordon movie, and that's the only way he could pitch some sort of sci-fi fantasy film was pitching Flash Gordon, but he didn't get the rights to certain characters of Flash Gordon, and so since he already got the rights to Flash Gordon, this was his little incubator to develop Star Wars. Yeah, and that's um, and and the Flash Gordon thing is all over the the idea of serialized. I mean, if you wanted to, you could draw a line, uh, it's or not a line, but you could make certain spots where you would go. Okay, next week in the Star Wars, does Luke make it off Tatooine with Ben Kenobi? See what happens with it. You know what I'm saying? Like there are chapters in within this story where you could see if it was like a television show, for instance, where the cliffhanger would be, right? right. Which is what they were going for with this movie. And in that way, it's very similar to Raiders of the Lost Ark and what they chose to do with that film. But I want to get into 
the story of this and and some of the fun stuff. Now, did you watch the original theatrical or did you watch the special edition? No, the original. I watched the special edition, uh, which isn't even the special edition because I had to explain to uh, people that there's the special edition that came out in 1997. Then there's the DVD copies where more effects were added. And then there's the Blu-ray copy where more effects were added. So if you go through and watch them, you can actually, I watched the Blu-ray copy. So it is, as of right now, the only, the, the a version that is most readily available. And there's a lot of background CGI that's added, but, and, and that stuff, you know, you can kind of suffer through it. It's clearly not on the same set or same time period as the other things in the movie. It takes you out of the film at some points, but it's not as overwhelming as it is uh, with the prequels. But the thing with this movie that I love more than anything else is having watched all three prequels, I will tell you the first time I really thought about the prequels, AJ, when we were watching this, it's when you see Luke's aunt and uncle and how apparently 20 years in the desert is equal to 50 years on planet Earth. Right. <laughs> because we saw them at the end of episode three, and they were in their mid-20s maybe, and by this movie, these are two people who are pushing 70. Right. And it's like, okay, uh, little, it's a little, it's, a, it's, it's, it's hard living in the desert, is basically what I'm saying. I'm, I'm convinced they were doing whatever the version of meth is in the Star Wars universe, which I guess would be uh, Kessel Spice, and because they just have aged terribly, and, and there, there's there's a lot of things that go on. But like you were saying, the movie starts off with just that opening shot of the Star Destroyer, which gives you this beautiful sense of scale when the it it absorbs the Tanty Four directly into its uh its its docking bay. And you just get this idea of size and scope and how how big this movie is going to be. And then the genius of it is it kind of slows it down, right? You have this big grand opening. And then it's, all right, now here's 20 minutes. Let's get to know the hero. He's on a desert. It's It's not... He's not walking through a green screen. He's actually in the desert, like, doing stuff. And as a result of that, everything that happens afterwards, you feel it's earned... Because and, and I'm in case you guys haven't told, been able to tell by now listening, I'm big on movies earning other points in the story. By the time he leaves Tatooine, like 45 minutes into the movie, you're on board with that ride. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's you're not questioning anything. You're not looking at it going, this this doesn't make sense. You're like, no, he's he's done these. The, the, what has happened to get him to this point makes sense. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? I do, but I mean, it also makes a huge difference between the writing and cinematography of the, you know, New Hope, Empire, and Jedi versus the prequels in that you actually have tight shots, you know, of each character's story. And you're also seeing continuity of the story as it goes along and everything. Um, Whereas, you know, the prequels that we talk about, there are these big, big widescreen shots and everything. And we had to include all that for understanding bigger scope and things of that nature. Whereas this one, this is where we're all engaged because because of these tight shots and because of the story that is happening and everything. Because we want to know about Luke and his aunt and uncle and everything. We want to know about C-3PO and R2-D2 and Leia and Han Solo and everything. It's because of those tight shots. And, and if that wasn't the case, um, I think it, it would never lost its meaning, but I think it would be, we, we would be having a different conversation if there were much more wider shots, I feel. I, I see what you're saying, that you get to know the characters a little bit more personally because you're able to see their faces more. Right, and we know who the protagonist and the antagonist in this film also, whereas we couldn't tell that in the prequels, you know? I mean, we, we, we know through development who the protagonist and the antagonist is going to be ultimately, but we know definitively, you know, Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, you know? We know with Darth Vader, and we're going to be following Darth Vader from now through Jedi. Of He's the antagonist, and that's the one who's going to lead us on this journey. 
the uh, the interesting thing is it, now having because it is all part of a singular narrative to go back and kind of hit because we spent three movies you know and altogether nine hours uh, roughly watching those movies and the more you watch a new hope especially because it has the most scenes on Tatooine where in episode two you get the idea that he's he's on the same farm that Luke grows up on. And when you see C-3PO there, like, I'd be lying if I didn't say, oh, that's kind of cool retroactively knowing that at one point Anakin was in this same room with C-3PO, you know, finish build, to finish building him. And 3PO doesn't remember it, but we rem- we know that now. And that's a cool little thing. It's it, There are moments that reach back to the prequels uh, retroactively that I don't mind as much. But the story is just so vastly superior. Not to mention character introductions are handled in a much better way. It's not so blatant. You know, you meet Grand Moff Tarkin, and you know just because of how Peter Cushing carries that character that he is a bad person who shouldn't be you know listened to or have anything kind of like done along the you can just tell that he's evil because of how he's carrying the character which you know speaks to his credibility as an actor darth vader is instantly you know the bad guy just based on how he looks you meet han solo who whether or not he shoots first is presented as you know quasi bad guy until the the shit really hits the fan. The the, the movie just seems to function on a better level in, in all ways, and I I, I it, it's it's just altogether good. But there are so many classic scenes, man. What let, let me go? I want you to go back, AJ. I want you to go back and think of a young AJ. What is the scene in this movie that hooks you? Like, what's the moment where you're like, this is one of the greatest movies I've ever seen when you were a kid? What was the moment? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say when we first meet Darth Vader. Commander, tear this ship apart until you found those plans and bring me the prisoners. I want them alive! That that scene? Yeah, um, there's something about... Darth Vader that really attracted me because he's he's a different villain than villains I've seen up to that point, you know. So um again, I mean I was a younger I mean this was the eighties we're talking about, obviously. Right. Um so I mean I've seen um Jack Nicholson's Joker, um I've seen Blade Runner, I've seen other things and Darth Vader is different um, we don't see his face he has that that noise and he has a cape for crying out loud um, and he's all black and everyone else the storm the stormtroopers are white and everything so it's like this who is this guy I even mean, the hallways are white now that you point it out. Like, if you think about it, like, he stands out so much in that scene because everything around him is, is white. And he's just this black, you know, thing that's just standing there. You know, I'm just saying, like, it's an interesting call. I, I never thought about it till right now. Just the, just the, the contrast of the white hallways, the white stormtroopers, and him. Right. You know, so, um, and this is the only, the first time, you know, if you want to put everything in context with the Star Wars films. This is the first time that there is a clear writing theme. Good versus evil. Darth Vader is wearing black. We don't know who he is, but he sounds evil. He looks evil and everything. Whereas we didn't know what the other writing themes were, other than certain models of different films from episodes one through three. You know, this is the first time we're seeing good versus evil and we're going to tell that story. The uh, interesting thing to me, the the moment that got me as a kid, and 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 I remember thinking that the first the first time I watched Star Wars with my dad, I remember watching it, and, and I I always remember this, thinking that the beginning of the movie was kind of boring as a kid, you know, like that I don't really care about this, I don't care about this, I don't care. It's not until the moment that this movie became the greatest thing in the world to me was the the chase leaving the Death Star, the four Tie Fighter fight on the Falcon. 
And okay. I don't know if it's because I was even at that age when I saw this already a big video game player, but I just, I've always, the, my favorite scene in this movie is that asteroid, not asteroid, the, the TIE fighter chase at the, when they break out of the Death Star. Just something about the music that's there and the way that the action works. You, they're not flying. You can kind of track what they're doing. And I think it's part of it is, is as a kid, because I saw Star Wars the first time when I was like five. And my dad showed me all this kind of stuff. Because I was a big Star Trek fan when I was a little kid. And my dad showed me Star Wars. Like, Nick, this is a movie I saw a lot of times in the theater. And I remember I was with it. I was with it. But I wasn't that interested in it. And they got to that, that TIE fighter chase, man. And to me, there's, there's, there's that scene. The Death Star run. The battle on Hoth. And the battle at the end of Return of the Jedi. Are, to me, what Star Wars is. You know, and I, and we'll get into the battle on Hoth for when we do the Empire podcast this week. But the asteroid, or the, the TIE fighter chase, man, is so fun. And it, it just, the, the effects work. Because think about it, it, it doesn't require a lot. You have a, a stationary target with the Millennium Falcon. And then whoever did the seed, the, the, the model work of the TIE fighters dancing around it, it just, it's totally believable. You're instantly in. It's the most sci-fi action that you've seen up to that point. And to this day, man, I will hold that scene up as one of the best action sequences in any movie. Any movie? Any movie. I'll put that up against Any movie? Because you care about the characters by that point. By that moment. Like, I'm not saying it's a... Listen, is it... No, I would. I'm, I'm trying to think. Like, give me action sequences that you put above that. I, maybe... And even the Marvel movies, I'm trying to think... Because I don't, even now, as big of a fan of the Marvel movies as I am, I don't care about those characters as much as I cared about the the big three uh, in Star Wars by the time they get to that asteroid thing. Maybe it's because I think of the Marvel characters as invincible, but there comes a point where the CGI special effects lowers the weight of what's happening. And in that scene, it's real ships... You know what I'm saying, like in quotation marks, but real models fighting and it just it works better. And again, it is all assisted, let's face it, by arguably the best work that John Williams has ever done. Right. No, no, I can see that. I mean, um, I'll put it this way. Battle of Hoth is still better, but. Right. This is, is up till this point. I mean, I'll tell you this. There are two things that happen in this movie that are better than any fights that happen in the prequels. And it's the Astro, the, the TIE fighter chase is, is a more compelling sequence than any of the space battles in episodes one, two, or three. And the lightsaber fight between Alec Guinness and Darth Vader in this is as compelling as the one we watch at the end of episode three. And it is a, there's a lot less going on, but Alec Guinness is such a good actor that he carries a gravitas with him in that scene that allows you to root for him in a way that you don't really root for you and McGregor in the other ones. Maybe it's also because we know he's going to die in this scene. But he carries, that that fight is as dramatic as any lightsaber fight in the prequels, and it's a hell of a lot shorter and with a hell of a lot less movement, but you're willing to be a part of it because Alec Guinness carries the scene. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying with that? I do. Um, and I guess, you know, going to that um, lightsaber scene with um, Guinness and Vader, um, what confused me, and I didn't realize it, until we had to get to um, the scene between Luke and Darth Vader is when Darth Vader essentially um, killed Obi-Wan. He disappeared, right? Yes. Well, uh, when Darth Vader's, when Darth Vader was struck by a lightsaber, his hand just came off and everything. And I was confused. I'm like, well, why did Obi-Wan like, disappear but not Darth Vader would you like me to put on my nerd hat for you and explain I would love that explanation okay so they do explain it but it's to cover up a mistake that is made at the end of episode one one of the most glaring mistakes ever at the end of episode one when Liam Neeson gets killed 
His body stays there so that Ewan McGregor can cradle him and watch him die, right? Right. Okay, but Liam Neeson's body doesn't disappear. He's burned at the end. Remember, he's cremated. Right, right. Okay. One of the biggest complaints that people had about Episode One in Star Wars fandom was that his body doesn't disappear. So at the end of Episode 3, if you remember... There's a scene right before they kind of do all the wrap-up montage where Yoda sends Obi-Wan to Tatooine to watch over the boy. And he says, Obi-Wan, while on Tatooine, training for you I have. An old friend who has learned to live to be part of the living force. He goes, your old master. And Ewan McGregor turns and goes, Qui-Gon? And he goes, yes. So you're supposed to kind of infer that Yoda and Obi-Wan are basically communing with Qui-Gon Jinn through the Force, and that's how they learn to become part of it when they are killed. I'm just telling you. It's confusing, I'm just saying. One character, you know, it gets, you know, evaporated, then the other character should be as well. I agree with you. I think it's one of the weirder things. That well, that would be a whole different other ending for Darth Vader too, wouldn't it? Yeah, and and I'm trying to remember at the end of Jedi when he dies, his body stays in the suit, right? Mm-hmm. So okay, we'll get into that when we're at the theater then, because we're going to be doing our Jedi podcast, ladies and gentlemen, at the theater. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. Let's not let's not burn good conversation now. And we're at about the halfway mark of this show, AJ. Three things I want to get to before we're out here. Number one, the Death Star sequence, when they're on the Death Star, is the main point of the movie. I mean, there's there's other stuff that happens before and after, but basically the majority of the movie is spent on Tatooine and on them escaping from the Death Star itself. I forgot, until I watched this movie again, how solid that Death Star sequence is. Just the... I'm talking about when they're on it. Like the... From the minute they get there and they're caught by the tractor beam. I also, by the way, prequel moment is in that scene. Obi-Wan looks up and does the, that's no moon. It's a space station. If you look at Alec Guinness's face, even though you know that he couldn't have known anything about the prequels when he made the scene, there is an implication that he recognizes the Death Star as an ultimate weapon. And he does see those plans in episode two. So I, I did like thinking if, if you are a kid, for example, watching all these movies, let's say going up to this one, you're going to think that Obi-Wan knows what the Death Star is. You know what I mean? Well, it, again, I, I said this last time is that you know, I would love to be able to fly on the wall when the, when the writers met because we had, they had, they had to do a lot, lot of, pre-context dialogue in order to lead up to New Hope, right? So I would love to know if they wrote dialogue for Obi-Wan just so you can lead up to that moment for Obi-Wan to say those things. Because I think that's what happened. No, I agree with you. I think that... that, Yeah, go ahead. What's that? No, I agree with you. I think that that's exactly what happened, is that they they wrote certain scenes in the prequels so that scenes in the 4, 5, and 6 make more sense. Right. Because, like we said earlier, I mean, we know what the destination is going to be. It's a matter of how do we get there now knowing what the destination is, right? So you have to like, you have to write that certain dialogue that leads you into New Hope. You know, otherwise, you're really going to screw the main objective of why you create these prequels to begin with. As you watch this one, and again, this one is so significantly better than the other three, did you get that childhood joy, even though you've seen this movie a hundred times? Yes and no. Yes, because, I mean, I was introduced to Star Wars, and um, I can, I recall remembering where I saw Star Wars and everything, but I didn't get that like that childhood feel until we get to the Return of the Jedi. Really, that's interesting. Because uh, Return of the Jedi for me is still one of the best movies for me of all time. Blasphemy! You know, it's in my it's in my top five. I had to clerk you there. What do you like better, Empire or Jedi? Well, Jedi. Blasphemy. 
I, 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 Empire's okay. Empire's a better movie. We'll get into that when we do the episode five podcast then. When we do the Empire podcast. All right. For me, I, I have a weird way of watching movies that I've, that I've loved since I was a kid. And I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but when I watch a movie like Star Wars, you know, I'm, I turned 33 yesterday and I, for about an hour and a half, felt 12. It, it's, it's the only way to describe it. I, I sit there and I smile and I quote all the lines to the point where I'm apologizing to the people I'm in the room with. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's bad. And, but at the same time, you know, I got to tell you this. Yesterday for my birthday, I got, so I got spoiled yesterday, AJ, and I'm only mentioning this because it fits into what we're talking about, but I got spoiled yesterday, man. I got an Xbox One with the Star Wars game, and my roommate and his girlfriend bought me a $200 Kylo Ren Force Effects lightsaber, okay? Like one of the really, really nice ones with the thick plastic that you can like duel with. And I had that thing in my hand the entire movie. Like just laying on the couch. I just I was just holding it. And I'm smiling from ear to ear. And my friend Nicole looks at me and she goes, You're smiling too much for this movie. I'm like, I just I can't help it. I feel like I'm twelve. And that's the power of this movie. It's why I'm so excited for episode seven. There are things that happen in this movie. There are scenes that take place that you just I guess it is, AJ, is that I just wish I could actually live that that in that universe. And this is the movie that makes me want to do that. This is the movie that even more than Empire, more than Jedi, more than uh, even the novels, this is the story that hooked me. This is the story that made me a fan. This is the one that got me. And it all leads, and we're coming up on the end of our show here, so let's get into it. It leads into the most memorable sci-fi action sequence of all time. Of all time. And that is the Death Star attack run. Talk to me about how awesome. I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, I don't know how else to get into this topic. How much do you love that Death Star taxing at the end of this movie? I, I mean, I, I don't think words really can express it. Um, it, it was, it's a very exciting scene. Um, it's a scene that you, I mean, from beginning to end, you're hooked and you're more hooked now because of that. You know, because you're like on it, so like what's going to happen? Um, what's this leading up to and everything? Uh, and knowing that, you know, there's going to be two other, um, episodes, you know, you kind of know there's going to, the, the story is going to continue on, but you're still on edge. It's like, it's like, what's going to happen? And I, well, no, when, it comes to this thing of I've seen it a thousand, I have seen this scene a hundred times and it is more exciting every time I see it. You know what I mean? Like, there's not a lot of movies. It's the opposite. It's like, I've seen it a hundred times, and it probably wore off by the fifth time. Oh, I feel bad for you. You know, I mean, there's other movies that do it differently for me. It's just this one that it kind of wore off. I mean, it's great. I mean, I still get excited, don't get me wrong. But it's like, yeah, they're just doing their thing. Well, see, all right. Let me let me nerd out for a minute here, because the 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 reason I love it so much is, first of all, I get introduced to my favorite character in the Star Wars universe outside of the big three, and that is that is the man himself, the the top dog, the biggest star, the best starfighter in the universe, ladies and gentlemen. And that man's nope. It is not Chewie. It is not Han Solo. It is not Luke Skywalker. The best or Darth Vader. The best pilot in the galaxy is an Alderanian by the name of Wedge Antilles. Really? Rogue 3, baby. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I learned this last night. He's Rogue 2. Rogue 2, baby. I love me some Wedge Antilles. That dude is the only guy to survive two Death Star runs, and this is the first time you see him. And he's the one dude who gets shot in the engine and is like, I can't do anything else. And they're like, get out of here, Wedge. You're no good back there. Sorry. And Wedge pulls out and books it because he knows he can't do anything anyway. So Wedge is out. And then poor Big's Dark Lighter, Luke's buddy, gets uh, blown up. All right, so you didn't watch the special edition, right? No. All right, so in the version that I... I've seen it, but I didn't watch it for this review. All right, so do you remember uh, in the special edition that they added that extra scene on Yavin 
where he talks to his buddy Biggs? Yes. Okay. I do like that scene being in the movie. It's one of the few things that's added to the special edition that I really enjoy because it does lend more weight to when Biggs gets killed. And well, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, the special edition has enhanced certain scenes that you don't get in the original. I mean, just for me, the original um, is the first, you know, and kind of brings home that, you know, this is what I saw from the beginning. And, you know, the special edition just kind of helps reinforce that with certain enhanced scenes. The 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 Death Star trench scene is and we'll talk and we're gonna talk about this a lot with Empire as well, but is one of those deals that I know every turn of I I, I joking with uh, I was joking with my friend Dave over the weekend uh, when we started playing Battlefront on his Xbox that I have played the Battle of Hoth a thousand times easily in my life. The only thing that I've probably played more in my life is the Death Star Trench Run, which I have done in video games in every form that it's ever been available in. And the only reason that I'm mentioning that is as I watched that sequence last night, I fell in love again with Star Wars. I'm not going to lie. There was a part of me that was starting to get really nervous about Episode 7 because of what we had watched in the prequels. And last night I was like, you know what? No. This is what's, this is Star Wars. This is what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to make you feel all sorts of feelings as Luke is racing down there and Darth Vader's behind him and he's, he's got him locked on his targeting computer and everything's going and you've just got it right there. And in my head, like a bizarre version of, vi- of video game PTSD, I'm just like, all right, you got to go left. You got to go left. You got to go left. Like, and I'm just playing this thing out in my head, man. And it, it was... Watching that scene made me fall in love again. Do, do you understand what I'm saying with that? Mm-hmm. What, uh, b- before we get out of here for the day, is there anything in this movie that you can see as, I, I like to describe it as chinks in the armor, like the stuff that will eventually go wrong in the prequels that you see in this? Because I was looking for it, and with the exception of the stuff that was, granted, I was watching the special edition, so the stuff that I noticed was all glaring and post-production but in the original theatrical cut that you watched are there any scenes is there anything in there that you remember negatively that you can see as this is where things will go wrong later personally i didn't see anything glaring um i guess for me it's more about you know how are the how are they going to really wrap this up you know and that feeling doesn't get reinforced up until Return of the Jedi. Um, that's like the only thing I felt that was like, you know, as you said, the, the chink in the armor because um, as as you're watching this, you're like, this is great, but you know, how how's Darth Vader going to be playing out? How does Luke Skywalker play out in this whole um, series, you know, what are we going to see with Princess Leia? What are we going to see with Han Solo? And even though there are certain things that we are going to see with Empire and Jedi, um, you still have that resonating feeling of, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, I mean, and ho- hopefully some of that is going to be somewhat resonated with Force Awakens. But then what happens after Force Awakens, if there's anything after that? The, I want to, before we get out of here, I want to talk about a couple things. Because this is the movie that launched this franchise. And you can't talk about this movie without talking about the hysteria that followed it. Uh, if you guys want to know some of the cool things about that, there's a great documentary that was done, believe it or not, by VH1 back when they were doing Behind the Music. Uh, I'm just saying that, AJ, so people understand that there was a time when VH1 was good at what they did. Uh, right. <laughs> but they did a show called When Blank Ruled the World, and one of the ones they did is called When Star Wars Ruled the World. It's available for free on YouTube, and it will get into the idea of the mass marketing 
uh, explosion that became Star Wars. And that led to them being on the Muppets and everything like that. But this little movie that even in today's thing, if you adjusted for inflation in 2012, the last article I could find on this, uh, it would have cost $40 million. Okay. The last Avengers movie mm-hmm. cost $220 million to make. Wow. This is still a relatively small independent film for even in today's world. And it is so much more powerful and so much stronger than so many films that come before it and after it that try to do similar things, especially after it. You know, you mentioned earlier that Star Wars spawned, you know, all of these other kinds of movies, these big budget movies. But people forget that Star Wars also spawned a lot of knockoffs, right? The Last mm-hmm. Starfighter, Explorers, uh, the, I'm trying to think of the other ones, the, the original Battlestar Galactica TV show, you know, the original one from the 80s, not the awesome remake from the 20, from the 2000s, which if you haven't seen, ladies and gentlemen, watch Battlestar Galactica from Sci-Fi Channel. Would you agree, AJ? No, I, no, that's, I agree with that. Yeah. The, but this movie is a cultural touchstone in a way it's unlike anything else. I think you and I, when we were on the old radio station together, I uh, had an episode of your show where we talked about myth and the power of myth. Mm-hmm. And I think we were talking about it in the context of uh, what is history versus myth and does at some point the myth become more important than history. And in this, con- for this sake, I want to get into the idea of these are our myths. The United States of America is the one of the youngest countries on the planet and is definitely one of the youngest cultures. We're a, we're a hodgepodge of different ethnicities and different backgrounds. And from the rich of the rich to the poorest of the poor, gay, straight, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, we're everything. We're all together in this giant pot. And, and as a result of that, we don't have our own cultural identity. We have the Revolutionary War, Civil War, our behaviors in World War One and Two, and that's basically our cultural history. Most of what touches Americans together, as, as weird as this sounds, is is pop culture. That is our culture. Star Wars is one of the most important pieces of that culture. Star Wars is up there with, I always tell people this all the time, if the Walking Dead came to life, right? Of like that world became real, and you had a baby, and you had children. Twenty years after the zombie outbreak, and they were going to be telling each other stories. In the United States of America, they're not going to be telling the stories of Hercules and Zeus. The stories that would be told here would be Batman, Superman, the X Men, and Star Wars. Those are the stories you would tell kids, right? Mm-hmm. that's the power of this movie. This is one of the American myths that will outlive all of us. And, and I mentioned it briefly before, the idea of a kid who's never seen 4, 5, and 6, right? And you got to think ahead 20 years from now, right? Kid is 10 years old, and his dad says, son, we're going to watch Star Wars. And the kid goes, and they watch them in order, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Those stories are going to seem more cohesive to them than they are to us because we grew up in a world where we were like, well, we already saw this and we know how this one goes. I think that as a total narrative, the prequels, while they suffer from, like, again, I think episode two is one of the worst movies ever made, but episode three into four, five, and six works. And it all comes off of one idea that one guy had to do Joseph Conrad, is that the right name, or Campbell, uh, A Hero's Journey in a fantasy sci-fi setting. I freaking love this movie, dude, and cannot wait to watch uh, Empire Strikes Back. Is there anything you want to add, any final thoughts, AJ, on Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, or out front finally gets to watch a good Star Wars movie? Um, I'm really glad that we're watching the the original trilogy. This is something I've always looked forward to while we're doing all this because um, uh, I'll be honest, I mean, the prequels were, was a pain. It was very hard to digest um, because of everything I had to explain. I don't think I need to bring those up again. Whereas this is something that the writing's better, the cinematography's awesome, 
given, you know, the time it was done and everything. And this is what Star Wars is, is New Hope, Empire, and Jedi. And really looking forward to watching Force Awakens because I think like other genres of music, I hope, I'm hoping that Force Awakens becomes that apex movie in the Star Wars films that the culmination of what we saw in the prequels, what we saw in the original trilogy leads up to this fantastic movie, hopefully, that J.J. Abrams is really crafting very well, from what I can tell from the trailers. That we will be seeing together on December 17th, live at the Pickwick Theater. Uh, the podcast begins at 5 p.m. to be covered by many of many a news organization. And, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we will be having costume contests, raffles, giveaways, all that stuff I said at the beginning of the show. Uh, I, again, I love this movie. I, I want to go back... This is one of the movies that I am jealous of my younger self, AJ, and not just because I'm younger, but because I wish this is one of those movies I do wish I could go back and watch for the first time. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Right. Like It's just one of those things, like, you wish you could have that feeling back, and, and I'm lucky. I get to kind of get that when I watch them, but... God, I love this movie so much, and it, and and it's it's been a long time since I watched it straight through without any interruptions or doing something else while it was on, and to actually sit and watch it for the first time in a long time, man, that was fun, and it's it's just so great to see you know Han or Harrison Ford looks like he's actually having fun on a movie set. It's just it 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 was such a good thing. Uh, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes out front reviews episode four a new hope which gave us new hope which i might title the episode <laughs> out front reviews star wars and gets a new hope what do you think aj for an episode title that's great yeah uh, yeah it's good okay. all right uh other than that aj say goodbye to the wonderful people bye wonderful people see he does what i say it's like a ventriloquist over the internet ladies and gentlemen uh, i am nick serranos and i want to thank you all for listening to this episode of the chicago podcast network we will see you guys on december 17th if we don't see you then then you're probably listening to this podcast after that event in which case thank you so much for coming and i hope you enjoyed this episode and i think you'll enjoy our reviews coming up of empire strikes back return of the jedi which if you are listening to this after the event you saw us recording that episode. Thank you so much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. We out! 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it.